Hello and welcome to the Alternative Book Club podcast, the online spin-off from the Literary Comedy Night. Each episode we welcome a different guest to tell us something about a book or books and then interrogate them about it. Halfway through we swap round, I talk and our guest asks the questions. I'm your host Shirley Hulse and today we are joined by comedian and art curator Verity Babs. Hi Verity, how are you? Hello, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Nice to hear you. <laughs> yes, you too. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your your life as a, an art curator? Um, so I'm one of those um, insufferable people in the art world who have a job title that's made up of a lot of hyphens. So <laughs> do various things in the art world. Um, I uh, do some curation. I do a lot of art writing. Um, I've got a YouTube series where I interview comedians about art and yeah I guess that's my main drive is to uh, talk funny about art (laughs) a bit. (laughs) I think that's a really good goal. This is maybe a tangential question but I was wondering what what you think the funniest piece of art is that you've ever curated. Oh yeah what have I ever like properly come in contact with? Oh so I was, how old was I? About 19. And I was sent by the university who paired up with this museum, uh, sent to Croatia for two months to do an internship there. Very lovely, very hot. And in this exhibition, which was all about um, the environment and raising tides and all this kind of thing, was a tank full of live jellyfish. And that was the, that was the piece. And because I was... <laughs> pretty incompetent <laughs> everything else they were like we'll let verity be in charge of these jellyfish so i'd spent quite a lot of time feeding these jellyfish and cleaning their tank but what they don't tell you is that if you clean a jellyfish's tank quite vigorously um the jellyfish in a state of uh stress curl up and sink to the bottom of the tank so but the problem was people were coming to this exhibition to look at these jellyfish who were like they were the poster child they were on all of the posters and promotional material um so lots of people came to see these jellyfish they were all floating well not in like just at the bottom of the tank um and we had to spend a lot of the day saying no they're not they're not dead they're just (laughs) sleep they're just sleeping (laughs) um which um <laughs> yeah that was that was my um that was my big curating break <laughs> wow i mean i have so many questions first of all i have no idea what jellyfish eat from what i remember they, they eat a sort of brown matter oh nice mm. yeah my other question was was the artist listed as like god or <laughs> <laughs> the jellyfish's mum <laughs> um <laughs> I I re I really really can't remember, but the the stress of that situation <laughs> I think is gonna is gonna be with me for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All those poor jellyfish. Yeah, well. it was, and and obviously the next time I cleaned them, I was very very gentle. <laughs> <laughs> Do you put that on your CV? Excellent jellyfish cleaner. Well, well, that's the thing. Of I left this internship, being like, right, okay, what can I put on my CV? And then it sort of was like, yeah, animal management, <laughs> aquatic. <laughs> We're joined today by comedian, art curator, and jellyfish cleaner, <laughs> jellyfish expert. They they eat a sort of brown matter. <laughs> That's amazing. I wish I'd do that exhibition. What are you here to talk to us about today? 
so honestly, I'm just here for a chat, Shirley. Um, <laughs> I've just come out of COVID isolation, so I'm pretty starved for conversation and attention. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, I was thinking about what you know what I was going to come and, and speak to you about, and I realised that I'm really not an ideal guest for this because I've never liked reading. I'm now uh, under investigation, uh, not by the police, but <laughs> um, but to see if I have ADHD, which um, makes a lot of sense if you've ever met me. I've always found reading really tasking. Uh, as a child, as a young person, I could never finish a book, or I'd read it in one sitting but never remember the plot. So, you know, Catcher in the Rye, loved it. What was it about? I don't know. Mm. Um, And you meet people who think it's kind of sacrilegious to start a book and not finish it. And I really respect and fear those people (laughs) um, who, yeah, who finish a book that they're not enjoying because they really ought to. Um, Personally, I'm a massive fan of quitting stuff. I thoroughly recommend it. Like if I'm not having a good time, then, then I'm out. Uh, unless you're paying me. <laughs> uh, I, I do, however, own a lot of self-help books, like the amount of self-help books that would suggest that I am entirely fixed. <laughs> um, I've I've got them in everything, uh, spending less, liking yourself more, freelancing, uh, anxiety management, stoicism, running, sleeping, eating. Like I've, I've really got the full set it really ought to be enough information to create the perfect person um but I've read exactly none of them (laughs) so my shelves are filled with these books that are completely unread but were I to read them I'd be a much better person so it's quite nice just having the option there (laughs) to um to make that life change should I so wish um I did do an English literature a level so I did have to read some books and these were mostly World War One books and poems because it was the centenary and um, I had to. But the best part was that they accepted Black Adder Goes Forth as a secondary text. Wow. So uh, I mostly watched that and most of my essays were were based around around Black Adder. Um, and and yeah, one draft of my final coursework about World War One literature got turned down because I'd compared a part of Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff to the romance between Niles Crane and Daphne Moon in Frasier. Um, <laughs> big, big fan of telly. I love its work. Um, and, and yeah, I found that for a lot of my A-level books that I'd quickly flick through loads and loads of pages until I got to a point where someone either said something or snogged someone (laughs) and I think I've just got that need for like constant stimulation um so yeah Tess of the D'Urbervilles mostly about fields I'm here I'm here for the snogging (laughs) (laughs) um I uh, I live for gossip which makes a lot of sense then I guess given that my work as an adult person is in the art world where you can basically look at a picture for a bit and then move on with your life. And that is what I've come to talk to you today about Shirley. Thank you so much. I can see exactly why art, you've got like an art brain. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I need, I need a quick hit of a picture (laughs) of a picture and then move on. I mean, I've I've done a degree that involved reading and, and writing (laughs) and, um, but the good thing about doing an art history degree is there's a lot of pictures. It's mm. every now and again when you're getting tired, 
they tr- they treat you they treat you with a little picture to keep you going like a little um visual snack <laughs> it is the adult version i mean not in a sexy way maybe but often in a sexy way but it's the adult version of picture books surely doing an art history degree oh yeah pop-up books <laughs> i yeah like a jack-in-the-box <laughs> i mean yeah i feel like some of the more saucy images would really benefit from that um, <laughs> I, I think i told you uh, last time we talked uh, that i was reading ernest gombrick's uh what's it called the story, the story of, of art. art and again that's like flicking back and forth through pictures a lot of nudie pictures aren't there there are and it's funny like <laughs> one of the things I always found solace in the nudie pictures was when I was quite young of looking at the like naked lounging ladies of, of the Renaissance and going, see, you know, curvy figures did used to be in. And yeah. then and then since <laughs> since then, I now look at those curvy figures and go, oh, dear, I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm past Renaissance. <laughs> but um, but, you know, the, the nudie ladies relaxing on a chaise long very relatable content <laughs> yeah I feel like we should have more of that I I had the same thing when I was growing up I was like oh my god in galleries there's people that look like me so maybe I should just be I don't know maybe more posh maybe I should get more oil paintings done of myself and naked then... naked more often <laughs> well I mean okay probably like not when I was a kid but <laughs> oh right okay okay I, I mean I I did some life modeling which was really good <gasps> What was the, that like? It was great. It was um, it was great for the soul. I think. I think I would always come away and and go. Do you know what? <laughs> I've given them a good time. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> the, the thing I found with the and, and not not done much life modeling, but whenever I did it, I always thought actually the body I have is quite an interesting one for people to draw and and paint mm. or whatever because it's got all sorts of different bits to it. <laughs> so it always felt like I was sort of um. Yeah, being helpful. Um, but no, really, really good fun. And um, yeah, nice. I've always thought it seemed uncomfortable. Not in not because you're naked. I mean, obviously there's discomfort in that, but um, just like having to stay in one pose for a long time. Now with a baby like lying on me, I get stuck yeah. in poses and it's very, after a while, it's not comfortable, even bed. Yeah, I had, <laughs> the, I think it was the first time I ever did life modeling and I got really cocky with what pose I could hold for however long um and 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 yeah I was sort of doing a my best attempt at doing that crab thing that kids do on the playground like where you've got your yeah I I I was doing a sort of um variation on that they always call that uh, that in yoga don't they They say a variation on Mm. that pose you actually can't do um yeah in this in this I think it was the second or third time I did it um and it was the day after Halloween and I'd been out with my friends the night before and the hangover hit me during this life modeling session the next morning and the last pose (laughs) I was like all right guys so this is going to be a lying down pose and I was just on the floor (laughs) with my eyes closed in the fetal (laughs) position I feel like in that life drawing class, maybe you went from still still drunk. Buzzing, yeah. And then the hangout, yeah. Yeah, as, as I slowly crumpled. <laughs> All right, guys, has anyone got a duvet <laughs> and a Lucas aid? <laughs> That's not what I was imagining the experience being like, but I feel like surely that added to your experience of life. I don't know. Yeah, good fun. That's what they say, isn't it, about anyone who writes or makes anything or does comedy. You've got to... You've got to have lived some stuff, <laughs> which is why when you do comedy at universities, it's all just people talking about, oh, isn't it 
funny and relatable to be at university. Mm. Um, so you've got to actually do some, <laughs> you've got, you've got to do some being drunk and then hung over at life modeling in order to be a good comedian. That's what I say. <laughs> That's really honorable of you to do that for comedy, <laughs> for the sake of comedy. You've got to, is it like um, those initiation <laughs> ceremonies? <laughs> <laughs> I like that though, because it's quite, um, maybe cheering when you're feeling miserable, like I have to get through this for the comedy. There'll be comedy <laughs> gold at the end. Well, yeah, I think we've all had horrible relationships where we've been like, mm. yeah, yeah, but this section in my solo show is going to be hilarious <laughs> oh god yeah did you buy some of the health self-help books to help with comedy or to help with relationships or um I think that every time I have like any kind of panic about anything I decide that that's the book I'm going to actually read mm. um so yeah I think each book I can pinpoint as to what the crisis of the moment was um for 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 why I bought them um I think that's quite a useful way to reflect and be like okay cool I need to write some new comedy I'll just have a look at my bookshelf I'll just have a crisis (laughs) yeah yeah what problem was I going through that's the thing that people always say when you're organizing your books you can do it by color you can do it by size you can do it by (laughs) by title but you can also do it by crisis (laughs) uh chronologically um but to be fair, the one self-help book I have got all the way to the end of was a breakup book that was um, that was very handy. No, I can't remember what it was called. And yeah, that was that was very good. Um, <laughs> I've tried to get into audio books, so I've sort of accepted that I should not buy any more physical books because I am not going to read them. Mm. In the same way that I'm like, I should not buy any more gym memberships because I'm just not going to go. Um, <laughs> yes. So now I've signed up to do zumba classes and audiobooks that's <laughs> that's sort of my gateway back into books and exercise that I've chosen to do by myself do you listen exclusively to self-help audiobooks or have you dabbled in other non-fiction or non-fiction? I have actually just started Oliver Twist oh a, read, a classic. I know read by Jonathan Price and I think one of the reasons why I've been put off from reading fiction is because I feel like I've got to complete the classics before I do anything else oh god I have that so bad yeah fair enough so like there's a lot of classics I've never read there's Mm. a lot of but there's like a lot of classic films I've never seen Mm. like big franchises that I will probably never start watching Harry Potter (laughs) because there's so many that I'd have to like it's an undertaking Mm, mm, um so this is yeah do you feel the same way about art? Do you feel like, oh God, I have to go and see the classics before I can look at some new art? Um, I I don't think so. And I think that's because, like, I, I, you know, I'm definitely not an encyclopedia of who did what when, but I have a vague enough knowledge of what stuff looked like from when <laughs> or like in what style. So I feel like with art, you can get an overview of stuff and then have that sort of, those pictures in your mind as to why stuff's happening when it's happening. Mm. But with books, it's not enough to have looked at the cover of Oliver Twist and be like, <laughs> got it, smashed it. Um, also, so yeah. it's, harder, it's harder to go and see the the old ones because, you know, what is it? The Last Supper is just in a monastery somewhere random. You'd have to be super, super wealthy. Um, I would also argue that reading all of the classics, a lot of them are shit and they're in the canon for reasons that um, I don't know like dead white guys like them 
yeah um, which doesn't uh, a good book make unfortunately so no true and it's and it's a shame i wish my memory of the books i had read as a teenager was better because there are some books that i remember being properly struck by mm. but then by a week later i really couldn't tell you about it like kurt vonnegut had a real impact on me i i can't tell you which books i read or what any of them were about but i remember them being very good and yeah i i, I don't feel that way about any other art that's really fascinating do you remember the pictures do you make because people's brains work differently right that some people can't remember a face if they look away from the person they can't mm. remember their face so I wonder whether can you remember some of the pictures that your brain created when you read those books interesting um no not really I feel like the books have had like mm. a profound impact on me and maybe like ha- maybe I can remember the feelings mm. yeah like, I guess art makes you like your reaction to art is often like a feeling art maybe. makes feelings yeah, I mean, I remember why I like Kurt Vonnegut because I came away from reading them feeling, um, I don't know, like brave. Is that a really silly yeah, thing to say? But, you yeah, know, yeah. or I came yeah. away from reading Catcher in the Rye feeling like, you know, being other was interesting and okay. But also, yeah. I really, ca- I, I honestly cannot tell you what the plot of Catcher in the Rye is. So <laughs> I don't know whether I'm now like, whether saying that he's other and okay is actually appropriate because I can't remember whether he committed some horrible crime or not but enjoyed it nonetheless if if it helps at all I genuinely have no recollection I can remember where I was I was in Portsmouth sat at the bottom of the Spinnaker Tower reading that book no idea was in it um and I do remember plots but I have realized recently because my degree now is like getting to be about 10 years ago um I keep like having these opinions that seem quite pretentious I'm like well I love this Jane Austen and I'm like I don't actually really remember what happened in it so I should shut the fuck up yeah there's a problem with getting a degree is that it <laughs> is that it really makes you feel like for a brief moment that you know a lot of stuff mm, and doesn't so last. yeah or you know I find myself having an opinion about what I think is my opinion about a thing that I realize is something I read about something oh god <laughs> you know over five years ago and that mm. is now my opinion on, you know, I don't know, the you know, ethics of the white cube <laughs> is, oh, no, you've just read that once and have pretended that that's your thought. <laughs> that's the worst. And then you're like, oh, am I ever original? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I think that we should swap round now if you're happy to. Gorge. I am going to tell you about what I'm going to talk about, which is uh, Shakespeare, everyone's favorite dead white writing man. So a recent poll showed that 5% of 18 to 34-year-olds think that Shakespeare's most famous play is Cinderella. Obviously, that's his second most famous play after The Ugly Duckling. Who can forget that famous line from Shakespeare's The Ugly Duckling? Uh, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and pondweed is the sun. Really, I'd like to share my most controversial opinion, which is the extremely gory and horrific Titus Andronicus is actually one of Shakespeare's funniest plays. Very important to note, this is excluding the part where Lavinia is raped and her tongue's cut out and her arms are cut off so she can't tell anyone. That's obviously abhorrent and kind of more in the true crime podcast genre rather than comedy. But after that bit, it becomes an increasingly ludicrous bloodbath and it is the most fatal of all Shakespeare's plays. There are 14 deaths total and five acts, so that averages just under three deaths per act. Or in different maths, there are 14 deaths out of a possible 22 characters, which is an astonishing 
64% mortality rate. This is only slightly lower than the amount of audience members who have tragically died of boredom watching Shakespeare's plays, and only slightly higher than the death rate of women whose surgery has been performed by male doctors. But sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. So we think, and we here is short for Wikipedia, that Titus Andronicus was written around 1590 to 1593, meaning it's one of Shakespeare's early works. Now, most people's early works are not their best works unless they are a poet who died tragically young or you're a creator on TikTok. This is Shakespeare basically copying a popular trend at the time, which is revenge tragedy. He copies the ideas pretty closely this early in his career, whereas later on he breaks the mold, writing masterpieces like Hamlet, which is kind of a revenge tragedy, but Shakespeare revolutionizes the form by, get this, reducing the exciting quantity of deaths and making it over two billion times longer. But what is Titus Andronicus actually about? Well, you think your family are fucked up. Feast your ears on this. Titus Andronicus is a general returning from war at the same time as... Uh, two sons are disagreeing about who should become emperor. It's important to note these two sons are not Titus Andronicus's sons. So Titus brings back this lady called Tamora, who's queen of the Goths, uh, as a prisoner. And straight off the bat, he just he kills one of her sons as revenge for some of his sons being killed in the war. Um, and this guy, Titus Andronicus, has about 20 sons, most of whom seem to exist only to be killed in revenge. So one tip to avoid your life turning into a revenge tragedy is have fewer sons. Tell you what, the Bennets had five daughters, not a single one of them was murdered. We can learn a lot about basic survival from Jane Austen. Um, so Tamora, Queen of the Goths, vows revenge and you could describe the rest of the plot with the saying an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind except from imagine the world has 14 eyes and sometimes the eyes poke themselves out so for example remember those two sons arguing about who should be emperor titus picks one of them and gives him his daughter even though the daughter has been promised to the other one and then they have you know a disagreement as is the way of these things uh and titus kills one of his own sons so I guess it's like, hey, Google, define toxic masculinity. Anyway, this kind of murdery hijinks continues for the rest of the play. But my highlight actually is not a stupid death, but instead a mutilation. Yay. So this guy called Aaron, who is Tamora's secret lover and generally a very angry man, turns up and says, Titus Andronicus, my lord, the emperor, sends thee this word that if you love thy sons, let Marcus, Lucius, or thyself, old Titus, or any one of you, chop off your hand and send it to the king. He for the same will send hither both thy sons alive. And that should be the ransom for their fault. So at this point, two of his sons have been captured and the ransom is one of their hands. He doesn't really care which. Now, I guess Titus is realizing that he's swiftly running out of sons at this point. So he is keen to sacrifice his hands for these two. Uh, so he goes on and he's like, oh, gracious emperor, oh, gentle Aaron, with all my heart, I'll send the emperor my hand. Good Aaron, wilt thou help to chop it off? He's really excited. But then, get this, another spare son, Lucius, and Titus' brother Marcus are like, no, no, your hand is important. Please cut off my hand instead. Stay, father. Thy noble hand has thrown down many enemies. Mine shall be sent instead. And then Marcus is like, which of your hands hath not defended Rome? Blah, 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 blah. My hand but hath been idle, let it serve. And they genuinely bicker for about five minutes, essentially going, oh, no, no, please cut my hand off. No, no, please cut my hand off. Impressively, no one kills each other in order to have the honor of having their hand cut off. At the end of the whole thing, in a fun bake-off twist, Titus serves Tamora a delicious pie. After he's been given the prized Paul Hollywood handshake, he does reveal that the filling was Tamara's two sons, and he's then voted off by the great British public. And that is, in a nutshell, Shakespeare's most horrific play. Lordy. I know. Heavy. Yeah, heavy, heavy. I mean, I quite like a bit of Shakespeare, possibly because 
I'm still holding on to a slightly uh, juvenile <laughs> juvenile pride that I can understand what's going on most of the mm-hmm. time. Um, like, <laughs> I got a bit big for my boots, and I'm like, I know what's going on in the plot of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> no biggie. Put me in, in stream one <laughs> for literature, please. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm so clever. Are you one of those people that laughs at the jokes? like very ostentatiously <laughs> <laughs> he actually means her vagina <laughs> and and get out a handkerchief at the same time and do some yeah Shakespeare an interesting one because I yeah I I like the plot where loads of stuff happens to people's relationships with each other because they're more I, I sort of feel mm. I can I can grab onto them but the stuff with all the violence and the his, the historical ones mm-hmm. are a bit much like I found the same thing with the idea of Titus Andronicus and like most Tarantino films Mm. where it's just a bit, it's so violent. You just feel like saying, shut up, like get over yourself. It's totally ridiculous. Like, I I mean, I guess one of the things that, again, it's not my opinion. I probably read at university is that a lot of Shakespeare's plays could be comedy if not for timing, or they could be tragedies if not for timing. So like, much to do about nothing he jilts hero at the altar and it could be she could actually die or like romeo and juliet they're like fucking teenagers they're so stupid but it is tragic because they do die so i don't know i feel like the lines are can be blurred but most like very serious productions would not they'll be like okay cool well we've got to do this bloodbath did you see the um the recent remake of West Side Story, just thinking about Romeo and Juliet, where no, very, very good. Um, and part of that was because it probably admitted that you know, in West Side Story, obviously it's like Tony and Maria who are playing these Romeo and Juliet characters. They're they're yeah, they're teenagers, so there there are good times in the film where they're obviously just like really awkward, and <laughs> they go on a slightly strange date with each other. And, you know, they sit opposite each other in, on, on a train and those kind of elements, whereas obviously in the original, they're played by people who are about 35. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, in loads of retellings of Romeo and Juliet, there's this idea of these are, you know, well-made decisions made by adults. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then you remember that that's really, that's really so not the dumb. case. And also, it, uh, Juliet, if you want to go into more detail, again... Probably not my opinion. Probably something someone clever, cleverer than me said in uh, in a class. Juliet is like, mm, maybe, maybe we should be a bit careful. Romy is like, no, I love this woman. Now I love this woman, which is like exactly what a teenage boy is like, like an idiot. Yeah. Well, te- teenage relationships are sort of the point of them is to teach you a lesson. But the problem with Romeo and Juliet is like they're not good. They've not learned anything. Well, they're just they're just dead. Well, do you think the families learned something? No, and do you know what? I bet they don't. This whole mm. idea that, you know, now the Montagues and the Capulets have been, you know, their relationship has been fixed because of this tra- this tragedy they both shared. Like, you'd be pissed. Mm. More fighting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, they don't have very many offspring left to do the fighting with. So maybe they just die out as well. Yeah, that's true. I remember <laughs> such a... St- you've really unlocked a memory <laughs> of... I really can't have been more than five or six years old. And we were in school and a friend of mine was like, I've just, I've just seen, maybe they've seen the film or they, or they, they'd been read it as a story. I don't know. They had just heard about Romeo and Juliet as a story. And so we were going to play Romeo and Juliet in the same way that you play houses or you play doctors or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there had obviously been some 
like mistake in the chain of communication. So what happened in this story was that Romeo um, pretended, so I think, yeah, Juliet pretended to be dead. Right. And then Romeo was really sad, but then he mm. pretended to be dead. And then Juliet wakes up, wakes up and sees Romeo who's dead. And she's really sad. So she pretends to be dead again. And there's just a series of people <laughs> waking up and then being sad, but not sad enough to top themselves. So going back to pretending to be dead. Um, and I really, re- I remember that really vividly in um, Mrs. Satsanji's classroom in uh, Upper Boddington Primary School. Oh, but don't you wish that an actual RSC production would do that? Because, oh, it's so, they're all so stupid that to have them just like alternately wake up and go like, oh no, he's still dead. It would just kind of make it feel a bit meta-theatrical. I I, don't, I would really love that. I think it's really silly. I saw a, a show by Spy Monkey called the like, something like All the Deaths of Shakespeare. Yeah. And I feel like that's the sort of thing they would do. But maybe that's like my instinct towards clowning. Yeah, yeah. This idea of you know all important decisions, you should always sleep on it. So they see that <laughs> see that Juliet's dead. He's like, I'll have a nap and then I'll I'll think about it. We we were in Edinburgh once, and my grandma went uh, with with my mum to see a one woman production of I think it was Richard the Third, which is apparently, apparently very very good. And as part of this play, she the 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 performer would give certain members of the audience like roles to fill they didn't have to do anything but it was you know hark the the duke of hereford you are the monarch of wherever um and they had to wear little stickers and my grandma was given um she was some duke of tuscany or whatever um who at some point dies so had a little sticker given to her that says I'm dead. And she, my, my grandma wore this for the entirety of the day, including when we went to, uh, went to a restaurant and they were just serving this little, <laughs> this, uh, this little old lady who had a sticker on that said, I'm dead <laughs> without context. <laughs> the server's like freaked out. Did they think they were in, maybe she should have just extended the play. She should have become a ghost in a new Shakespeare play. There are ghosts in Hamlet, right? That's like, um, yeah, anything up in Edinburgh is performance art, if you say it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything in a gallery is performance art, if you say it is. I've seen a lot of nonsense go on. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen a Shakespeare in a gallery? Oh. Well, I mean, obviously the answer is no, but I don't know why I thought about it. Like, and now I'm just, <laughs> I'm not racking my brains. interesting just, idea. Yeah, I'm just thinking know. about it. <laughs> I don't know whether it would be too much, you know, like a hyper, there'd be like the art on the walls. Maybe like Ophelia on the wall. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how I feel about plays, old plays that try and do it in like a hip modern setting. Oh, yeah, so it's yeah. like, yeah, we're doing Twelfth uh, Night, but um, Viola's in a hip hop group, <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. Malvolio's just invented the Rubik's cube. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. Because it's hard because it's like you have to either do it not at all or all the way. So sometimes you see these retellings of Hamlet and they're in the modern day. Or, you know, they, they do a retelling of Romeo and Juliet in the modern day. Mm. But at no point does Romeo think to text Juliet. Yeah. By the yeah. way, here's the plan. You know what I mean? I feel like you've got to do it all or not at all. Yeah. Which is very much my attitude to reading <laughs> is I'll either not or I will. <laughs> have you read any of Shakespeare's plays? Presumably at A-level you would have... 
had to. Yeah, I I have read a, a few of them. I guess in the sense that you can read a play. Mm. Um, oh, the deep. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it just brings back really really traumatic memories of our. A level teacher who would make each member of the class read it out and then he would stop us every line and explain what it meant and I understood what it meant it was like insanely slow and the same teacher would like put one of his legs up on the desk and his whole kind of crotch would be intensely just I just don't have that positive memories from this one we we would read as a class and there weren't very many of us in this class and every play we read we were all typecast <laughs> but i Who did you have to what, no i won because i was always oh. the leading lady <laughs> yes and that's what you want <laughs> and my and my best friend she was always the villain without without <laughs> and because there weren't many people in the class my teacher almost always read the leading man <laughs> so ooh, there was ooh, a bit creepy and, and <laughs> I've always said this. It sounds creepy if you say it out loud, but it wasn't at the time. Um, <laughs> it was a different time. Grandpa's from a different. Grandpa's from a different generation. Um, but yeah, we'd we'd have to read that, and that's a relatively difficult experience to do. But um, mm. I really like plays, and I think it's because there's that visual element there. Mm, of you can, yeah. you know, if you watch a play, watching a play is like reading an reading an audio book. There's there's humanness. Mm. And it. you do have the artistic elements in terms of there's the setting and I often find the costumes are really, I don't know, I bloody love a sumptuous costume. I think <laughs> there's costumes in the VNA, they're, they're kind of art, aren't they? I say yeah. this as really Yeah, a, costume no design and stuff like that. Mm. I, I did a play once um, when I was about 17 or 18 this local theatre for, for young people back when I was a young person mm. and um which is very interesting and it was a really good play called oh my god what was it called it's very very good <laughs> <laughs> and it was about uh the first women being let into Cambridge University oh blue stocking yes I was like it's a colour and then it's a thing <laughs> um <laughs> so uh, yeah blue stocking is very very good love that but I've got such uh, anxiety about line learning, which is why I've only ever done, re- you know, really improv comedy or stand-up comedy where if I muck up, it's my own fault. Yeah. Or I did a radio play once where you can read it out <laughs> from behind the <laughs> microphone. But every time without fail, if I go and stay with my parents, I will have a nightmare that I'm in the wings of this play and I can't remember what my lines are. And I think, oh, well, it's fine. I'll just improvise because I'm, I'm quite good at that. And then I remember it's quite a serious play. So you can't just turn up and it just do just just riff for a bit. Um, so, yeah, that's her. I mean, I, I like plays, but it is one of my re- my recurring nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I, yeah. Line learning is really hard. Um, right. I'm going to round up there. Thank you so much for coming. Do you want to tell us where people can find you? Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. Best place to follow me is at Verity Babs Art on Instagram. And I've got a website, veritybabs.com, which is where you can hear about when I'm next doing our 
comedy show which is called art laughs after the youtube series which is also ongoing you can watch that on youtube where we get comedians to talk about art for a bit and it's a good laugh and it'd be lovely to see you there (laughs) brilliant thank you so much um and if you want to find out more about the alternative book club you can find us on facebook instagram at alt book club and you can find out more about the events that we run and see us live thank you to you for listening thank you so much to verity for joining us and goodbye goodbye goodbye